knowing the rules and the context in which you're going to intervene with your algorithm is extremely important. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Introducing an exclusive new webinar series on advancing AI. It's available only online. It won't be released for the podcast, but you can join live to these webinars. So join us over breakfast from February to April by signing up in the link in the show notes. We will be interviewing leaders in the data and AI space. They will guide you through the hype and maze of technology to achieve the business transformation we all want from AI. Whether you're looking to leverage AI to optimize the customer experience or to improve your business operations, this series underpins the core elements crucial to your company's AI strategy. Featuring guests from around the globe, including people from companies like NAB, Finair, Woodside, etc. Check out the schedule, sign up through the link in the show notes or visit datafuturology.com for more information. I'm super excited to bring you this new series. Hope to see you there. Hi, I'm Felipe Flores. Welcome to another episode of Data Futurology. This morning, we're going to be discussing ethics in AI, something that a lot of data scientists are feeling the burden from this topic and really has so much knowledge to give us in this space. I wanted to ask you first about how you got into data and and data ethics. Uh, What was the, uh, the journey that took you landing in that world? Thanks for the question. <laughs> the, it's been a couple of years uh, to get to, um, well, since a couple of years uh, I've got into uh, data and ethics. Um, I'm, uh, so I'm, um, I'm not a technologist, I'm a lawyer uh, uh, by trade and I started uh, as a litigator, um, looking at um, litigating around country, across countries. And um, so I was quite interested in multi-jurisdiction, um, the laws that apply, um, and then that got me into working into finance for algorithmic trading. So I was I just got into um, algorithmic trading, uh, working for a bank and looking after the trading, the execution, and the clearing of the transaction in two thousand and eight. So that so was perfect timing. Yeah, the crash. So. I learned a lot about um, what not to do um, and also um, all the remediation action that happened following all the regulator uh, coming down on the algorithmic traders. And this um, all together really um, uh, piqued my interest when AI came along because it seems like a history repeating. Um, the the first that we're looking at AI and ethics, and that's how I learned about it, was um, from South by Southwest, was like back in 2006, no, 2016, sorry, um, that uh, they started to have discussion on ethics and AI, and that piqued my interest. 
And I saw somehow that the law at the time, all the initiatives were done overseas. There was nothing in Australia that was done. Um, I was trying to get into pretty much every international initiative that was um, arising. That, that's why I got into the IEEE work. And um, since the law was not going fast enough for me, I decided to venture in the world of standards and push for um, um, a discussion with Standard Australia and a few stakeholders and push for uh, Australia to participate in the international standard on AI that just started uh, in 2017 after uh, the Vladivostok meeting. So that's how I got involved. <laughs> Fantastic, fantastic, and there's there's definitely a lot a lot for us to um, to unpick there because yeah you've been involved with the with the IEEE also with with Springer on their you know AI and ethics um, journals and with the AI standards uh, Australia so lots um, I. I don't know how you do it, keeping, keeping, um, you know, doing work across so many things. Um, so, so maybe for the people that don't know about the AI standards, uh, Australia, can you introduce um, the organization, the work being done on the AI front and your role as, as chair? Yes, uh, of course. So um, Standard Australia provides, um, do all the work around standardization of different um, uh, topics. It goes from environment to obviously technology to um, the standards you have to build the houses. Um, so what happened, uh, there's a special committee called GTC1 uh, that's looking at the technology aspect uh, of the standardization and as I say in 2017 um, the international standard ISO decided to um, that it was valuable to have to start a standardization initiative on artificial intelligence. What that means is um, pretty much establishing best practice. And the advantage that ISO has it's it's relying on um, existing company practice. So, for example, one standard that's uh, very famous that everyone's using in risk management is. Uh, 9001 um, that's adopted pretty much all, all around the world. So um, from that perspective, um, there's uh, a standard that's uh, at the international level that's developed. And in Australia, we decided to, um, so the, once it was adopted, uh, decided to go with an international standard, um, you have um, people that are observed or countries that observe or participate in the mm -hmm. standards. So Australia participated, entered as a participant in, I think, 2018, um, which means that my committee, um, so that's lots, um, standards love working by number. My committee is IT043, is mirroring the work of more numbers for you, SC42. <laughs> which is um, SC42 is a, com as a international committee. So there's about 42 countries that are participating in the work. Um, in our meetings, the one that we had, we used to have face-to-face, -face, we meet twice a year internationally. We have hundreds, 150 experts. Um, that's coming for pretty much, um, that are delegated from each of those member countries and that are um, working on the standardization of AI. And my committee 
is um, providing input uh, the, the Australian input into the um, international standards and um, and also is um, adopting deciding to adopt uh, the standards that are produced uh, by um, uh, GTC 1 SC 42. Um, is your standard committee open for new members? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, there was, uh, as part of the standards uh, roadmaps that Australia has uh, put in place, um, so there was a standard roadmap that was launched uh, by Standard Australia in uh, March uh, this year. And as part um, of uh, this roadmap, there was a call um, for uh, participation um, into the work that Standard's doing. So we, we are taking on new members, but if you're interested, um, there's also possibility um, to contribute, um, not as a committee level, but in a subgroup level. So um, standards will um, take into account uh, um, offer for participation. That's great. That's great. We had a yeah, we had a question from Ken asking whether the standards committee is open for new members. So there you go, Ken. Um, and for anyone else interested, there are definitely areas where you can get involved. And he followed up with saying how how to get in touch to get on on the committees. Ping me on LinkedIn, um, and uh, I'll. Uh... I'll uh, put you in touch with the Ah, oh, love it. Well, well done. Um, represent us well, Ken. Um, pressure's on you, mate. No, no, I was joking. Um, so I wanted to, to ask you about um, what, what do the, the standards look like? Uh, what are their, um, some of the components that we could discuss? I know that in the case, oh, and, and tell me how different they are to the ISO um, standards. I know that with ISO, um, sometimes you have to, you have to, um, create sort of the internal company standard and then you have to abide by your own framework or standards that you set. Um, are you taking a similar approach or are there going to be um, um, standards that are more prescriptive uh, prescriptive in, in the AI ethics space? So um, we're mirroring the international standards. So it's at that level. Uh, obviously, after there can be always the opportunity to have adaptation or um, at the national level. Um, but I think the first piece is most definitely um, there's so many initiatives at the moment on ethics and AI and good governance and AI. Um, and it's you'll see anyone that works in that field to take track, to keep track of every single initiative is um, um, a full day job in itself. Um, so, so effectively, that's the first piece of the puzzle. How um, it is structured? Well, we have um, we have five working group um, that represent the working groups that are at the, sorry six working group um, that represent the structures that's followed at the ISO. Um, so. Some of those working group are more technical uh, and some are more on the governance and on the risk piece. On the risk piece. We have a, at the moment, we have um, all the, let's say, the first part of definition and uh, general data framework that's been done. So work that's um, underway at the moment, that's uh, kicking off is 
what's called a, um, AI management system that's also referred in the standard roadmap. And that's look that's a pathway for certification of AI system. And so that would leverage the work that's currently underway on trustworthiness, uh, risk management, um, like um, governance um, of AI system uh, for organization. So there's a number of items that um, both technical and non-technical that will be part of that AI management system. Yeah, that's really good, really good. And we have a, a question coming in asking whether there's any collaboration with the CSIRO slash Data61 and their AI ethics framework? Yes, you'd see that in their framework, they actually referred to standards as one of the tools. Um, and obviously, there's uh, we're working with the Department of Innovation um, when we uh, release that roadmap. So um, yes, it's all um, working together. That's great. That's really great. And could you could you give us some um, some examples or some some case studies uh, that that highlight the the importance of of AI ethical standards um, or that highlights some of the pitfalls? Um, are there are there any anything sort of um, any case studies or any examples out there that uh, we could we could discuss through? Um, so um, at the moment in terms of example um, like more for there was a current work that's relevant from uh, the standard is um, risk management. Obviously, how do you, uh, how do company adapt their uh, risk management uh, processes for AI systems? Um, for the governance piece, how do you make sure that your board is aware of all the risk of the AI system? From a technical perspective, obviously, uh, bias, fairness is uh, one of um, the big piece um, within um, one of the cases that I see um, one of the so not as I can't use a use case for, that we have with ISO more so a piece of, a use case that I see keep coming back is mm -hmm. how do you manage privacy bias and accountability so that's currently um, an issue where um, many organizations see that in order to maintain privacy, um, you need to get um, the, the initial uh, reflexes to actually get rid of the sensitive data or and, um, and build proxy. Um, there's, in the research, there's, it shows more and more now that to do this as impact on the effectively on the way you are auditing and your capability to audit um, um, the algorithm. So to effectively remove sensitive attributes uh, become more and more an issue and there may be a, a valid reason to keep them in. So that's, uh, and at the moment, there's some uh, research that's uh, led or around um, I hear that also from uh, a lot of um, data scientists. Um, how do I figure what fairness is for my use case? So that's where the standard can be quite useful. Um, 
And that's where I think um, a multidisciplinary approach is very much needed. That's great. No, I'm very, I'm very happy to hear that because uh, a couple of years ago there was there was a trend of um, trying to trying to predict bias in the data. So essentially, build when you're building a predictive model to uh, to predict something that the business needs, there will be some bias there, say some racial bias. And they were saying the trend was to get rid of that bias, try to predict race out of with the data you have, try to predict race. And then whatever was most predictive, take those variables out and then go forward and, and predict the, the actual business um, use case that you were going to do at the beginning. So they were trying to eliminate data that, that held the information that, that could give bias. But as you said, um, that definitely takes a big toll on um, on the usefulness and the accuracy uh, of of the algorithms. Uh, have you seen any any shifts uh, on that on that front? Any any new adoptions uh, of of different alternatives through the um, AI ethics frameworks um, that we can that we can look forward to? So um, uh, actually, it comes from uh, the privacy regulator in the UK. They actually. Yeah provided that you see some more and more guidelines, regulatory guidelines emerging, mostly, um, I'd say, um, overseas or international um, groups that are, um, in the case, um, explain, giving some uh, indication on what the law is going to look like. Uh, and from the, the privacy regulator as a, um, in the UK as um, some very good guideline of that um, explainability and the UK government also puts some guidelines on um, auditing AI system and um, they both caution uh, um, on the need to keep privacy yet that um, in order to uh, fairness being one of the principle also um, dealt with within privacy that you need to be particularly careful when you remove um, sensitive attributes, um, because that will uh, have uh, un that could result in an unfair outcome on individuals. Um, so, and that goes against the accuracy principle that's mm -hmm. under privacy. So, um, the problem is getting. Um, um, stronger and stronger. Um, I think it's still on the solution. Um, obviously, this is looked at at the standards, can't really discuss the content of it. Um, but if you look at uh, what's happening, um, obviously, again, um, the partnership of AI um, strongly recommended, which seems to be a logical solution, that whatever solution you use to um, address fairness and bias should be strongly aligned with the legal principle for fairness and bias. Um, so fairness is not, um, and discrimination law, I've been here for quite um, a long time. So whenever a data scientist is adopting a solution to, um, to effectively uh, assess how fair the algorithm is and uh, use mitigation method, um, they should be mindful that it's in line with the approach that's taken under uh, anti-discrimination law. 
So, and um, the partnership on AI made a, a very good um, research piece on that point too. Yeah, that's that's really good. And do you have do you have any um, any examples that uh, of of you know AI ethics scenarios that might be happening um, either sort of um, in the news or or any any sort of examples that we see out there that you could walk us through uh, what were some of the some of the problems, what the scenario is, and and for people to get um, uh, a feel of a, of a use case. I'll take the um, the one that everyone knows. That's a, the the most basic. Um, the to, to, for me, um, it's mostly a governance issue. So if you look um, the Twitter Tay chatbot, um, everyone knows about this case. What happened? Um, it's um, the chatbot learning on uh, data uh, and adopting. Um, and changing um, its recommendation based on the learnings that it made. See so if there's no control, to be honest, it's the same as algo trading. If you don't have the right control in place, the right filters, um, then um, your output is uh, can be uh, problematic. So mm. in that case, um, the, they didn't monitor uh, the, oh well, the monitoring of, um, of the chatbot, and the, the, there was two problems. They they didn't look at the data could that could be ingested and what how it could learn and the and the consequence and the impact it would have. So for that use case, I think uh, since then Microsoft done an amazing job at um, uh, improving um, and developing. Um, Ethical um, and ethical methodology, um, impact assessments now uh, are um, becoming more and more common. So, um, to do an impact assessment in that case would have been okay. If the algorithm learn what's the, what's the impact it can have, uh, how it's going to affect um, the individuals there. Um, so, looking at um, having a proper algorithmic impact assessment nowadays is becoming more and more uh, common. Um, then obviously looking at the data, it's going to ingest like the testing it and the monitoring. Um, that's that's uh, the key um, basic practice. So yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, and um, what about, um, what about, um, when organizations don't have better data or any better data to improve the fairness or, or reduce bias. And there was, there was an example um, late last year uh, from health in the U S and it's, and I ask because it's, it's quite, it's a very similar uh, scenario to, to, um, uh, some of the work that, that I've been involved in at the moment in, in health where what happened in the US was that they were they had different programs to help people uh, recover after surgery and they had different levels of, of coverage that was or, or different levels of support that was offered where there was a digital channel which was seen as sort of the base level of support. Then there was uh, a medium level of interaction with a, with a nurse on the phone. I think it was about once a month. And then there was 
a high level of interaction with a nurse on the phone that maybe once a week. And, um, and people were um, sent to the three different channels according to how much savings that extra support would create for their future healthcare uh, claims. So essentially from a healthcare payer perspective. And uh, what came out uh, later through a bit of research was that um, the, the expenses on healthcare were a proxy for socioeconomic in, uh, factors, for socioeconomic indicators. So essentially the, the richest people and generally white people got the, the most level access to a nurse and then uh, people in so lower socioeconomic areas um, or, and especially sort of Latinos and African-Americans, they were being sent down the digital channel. And in that case, it was because the, the health fund uh, or the health payer being a sort of a health insurer had, had the information about what, what type of um, health people were claiming on. And then they were trying to use that to predict um, the savings that each individual person could get as a result of a higher support program. But the problem there was that the, the spend on healthcare is, is a proxy for socioeconomic indicators. Um, but in that case, it's kind of like how the company runs. So it was definitely a bad blind spot and something that, that could be uh, improved. Um, but then what, 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 is, uh, what is your view on how that can be done better? So is that your question about hard to acquire more data? So you have a more, um, uh, you don't have any blind spots. Um, so, yeah. So one, one option and whether it's the recommended option is to, to acquire more data, um, about, about individuals and trying to avoid that, um, that proxy or, or using the, the claims information as a proxy for, um, for socioeconomic information, whether the, the um, I guess a better path is to acquire more data um, or is, um, is it more understanding the data that's going to the system or are there other things that, that um, could be considered or should be considered from, from a um, ethical framework uh, perspective? So from that perspective, obviously, um the data first um, help to have a better picture of uh, your customer. So if you don't have that, it's always problematic. You see a number of governments that's um, trying to change the legislation recently. France and India are looking at data sovereignty in different ways. So they're actually um, uh, looking at um, sharing data um, for um, trying to compete, let's say, with uh, the big tech company and to limit that competitive advantage by ensuring that data can be shared uh, between company if they have a strong benefit for individuals. So you'll see that there's, um, in most of the ethics principle at the moment, there um, what two principle at least out of uh, the one on their list that is dedicated to benefiting society. Um, so leveraging on that, you see the, the next piece of legislation that says, if you can do this, then um, we, there's a, a possibility to share the data for the benefit of the individuals and um, to effectively um, ensure that everyone has uh, more open access to uh, the data. 
Um, the second way to do it, obviously, is um, consent. So, but for this, you need to be trusted. Uh, and um, with the amount of data breach uh, that's currently occurring, uh, it's uh, uh, it's been a uh, it's more well the climate is less in favor of organization. But this is why trust is essential, and I've, um, building good um, mechanism in the first place will actually help. Um, gain or regain that trust. So that's the first part on the data. The second, obviously, is having um, good um, risk management practices, um, just testing your algorithm, um, just uh, the output, uh, mostly um, um, stress, reverse stress testing it. So that are some of um, the key basic element um, and, and to be honest, also user experience, right? So um, there's a lot of good work that's been done um, with um, uh, user design. Um, in Australia, we did a, a workshop where we were looking at AI um, that's used to help people with mental disability um, you could have all the data you want if you didn't have stakeholders that don't understand um, or if we didn't have the experts that had the background about mental disability and the history and of it um, you would have built um, let's say um, not the right experience for the right person um, so knowing the rules um, and the context in which you're going to intervene um, with your algorithm is uh, extremely important and this has been reflected to um, as you see in a way the AI ethics principle are inspired strongly inspired from bioethics principles so it's a bit now there's more more and more uh, government are inclined to um, to align data research to um, health research so going a little bit more that way Interesting. That's really, really interesting. And do you have do you have a view of where this function should sit in an organization? Um, understanding that that across the board of sort of whoever is working with data or around data will have some part to play um, around an ethical use of of data and AI. But is there is there um, a certain part of the organization that would be uh, better suited to to sort of take take the lead on on the on embedding these principles across the organization is it a function that exists or something new uh, where where do you see it sitting in in an organization this will depend on the organization so uh, there's not one model that fit all it's um, generally one thing that's uh, obvious is it should not sit um, just we this is, this is what we were discussing this is not just the responsibility of the data scientists to um, effectively uh, have to decide whether it's um, ethical or not this is there's all the mechanisms that can be used within an organization to assess those ethical risk um, and uh, it's more um, if depending on the capability that one has, uh, whether enhancing the existing risk, legal compliance, um, 
and uh, human rights um, mechanisms that exist to um, to actually um, leverage that uh, for um, AI system. So that's um, it should never be um, the data scientist on its own making the call um, um, for the one reason that um, they specialize in data science and uh, to decide what's fair and what's not should not be uh, resting on the shoulder of uh, one person. Um, I agree. Yeah, I think there'll be a sign of relief by many people um, in, in hearing that. Sorry to interrupt. Um, obviously, some organization, uh, mostly the one that are um, um, creating and developing AI system, have um, used ethics um, advisory board. Um, so these, these are the organization um, that have mostly um, been setting new um, advisory committee um, dedicated to ethics or the one that are um, also um, where there's a high impact like in health, that's, that's the one that have, uh, that have taken that steps. At the moment, if you look at the other organization, it's mostly um, leveraging their risk, the legal department, um, obviously also the, the knowledge of their tech department and um, the human rights capabilities that are currently available. Yeah. Yeah, really nice, really nice. And uh, we'll, we'll take uh, a couple questions from um, that have been coming in from the Q&A and, and from the audience. Um, the first one is uh, from Anurag, and he's asking, can you share any insights on quantitative ways to cover bias and privacy for organizations? So are there, are there any ways to start to measure the... Um, the bias uh, set to measure um, levels of privacy and, and being able to, um, I guess, show that you're making uh, improvements on what was there before? Um, I'd say that from what I've seen, there's a tendency to think that um, if you show that it's as, and that's my personal observation, um, that if you show that you are doing as well as the individual uh, as um, individuals would do without an AI system, you should be fine. Um, I think um, at the moment there's a need to show it's doing better. Um, it's because your average person, like your average person, um, if you look at law again, uh, when they're looking at whether um, the um, the conduct was reasonable. It's looking not as um, the average person. It's looking at the best uh, person. Um, let's say uh, we have it's um, in law. It's the person from the Clapham bus. But what it means is. Um, someone of a higher standing in society, uh, ethical standing, that would be able to make the right call in the right circumstances. So that's why in your code of conduct, um, um, you already set the standards for individuals and your algorithm will have to have to abide by the same uh, standard as the one set in your code of conduct. So, which is, again, the interesting um, interaction between 
what the law requires, which is that level of standard of the code of conduct, which is not measuring, I have 100 people doing it this way, therefore, um, if I do it the same way, that's going to be the ethical um, or the, the, the reasonable uh, approach to, to adopt. Um, so that's how do you encode, like the, the question is, how do you make sure that your algorithm are actually um, in line with uh, the code of conduct that are actually setting the bars for, um, for the way the decision making should be made? Right, right, right. So, so in this case, when you say the algorithm has to be better, it needs to be better from an ethical perspective, not, not from a performance of the algorithm, um, or not better from a standpoint of solving the, the business problem better. It's, it's uh, right. from an ethical perspective. Um, is that right? From a legal and an ethical perspective, because your code of conduct would say you should never do X, Y, Z as an individual because it's setting the bar for that um, human behavior. Um, mm -hmm. So the tendency is to say the performance um, in terms of um, the way it should um, make recommendation um, should be equivalent, should be no better than the one of um, the, 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 that's done currently by individuals. But this is not the right way to measure it. It's really mm -hmm. the, um, the standards that are set by uh, the law and that's reproduced in the code of conduct. Right, 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 right. Um, going back to your question, it's, yes, it's not the performance, it's more the governance piece again. So then any, okay, so then any, any algorithm making decisions that are, um, um, that need an ethical oversight, then they, they must be essentially yeah, more, more ethical, more fair than the decisions that would be currently being made by people or, or machines, if there are any machines doing it at the moment. Yeah, you sh yes. Um, in that, that you should refer to your code of conduct rather than at what people are currently doing. As a and then the code of conduct is that defined internally in an organization? Generally, yes. For the bigger organization, most definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so that's one of the scenarios that that where you you define the approach internally, and then you have to you know abide by it internally, and that um, your I guess some sort of certification might, might um, rely on you abiding by what, doing what you say you, you're gonna do. Yes, so you need to ensure, so generally the, the new piece that comes in is that you need to ensure alignment um, of your algorithm with the values promoted by your company um, because you have already the values in, in relation to beneficence uh, that are already embedded in um, the value and the purpose. Um, of the company. So um, from a standardization perspective, that's how it's been tackled. Right. And what about for the companies or organizations that need to create a code of conduct or, or an ethical AI framework? Um, what do you recommend for them? Where is a good place to, to start? So um, the Australia's, um, the federal government at, at the moment proposed eight AI ethics principle when they're testing it. So um, 
that's one good place to start. Uh, MIT also did a very good um, analysis of all um, the principles that have been um, adopted or proposed all around the world. Um, and you'll see there's um, um, generally um, a, a very strong commonality, fairness, accountability, um, and um, uh, fairness, accountability, um, are uh, one of the and transparency are as a key uh, ones that are pretty much across all the principles that are have been adopted or recognised around the world. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And there was there was a question um, there was a question here around the explainability piece from Smitan who says with the advancement of neural networks, which is not explainable to a large extent. Will this lead to a shift for more advanced models to simpler models, which can be ex which can be explained but do not achieve high accuracy? So um, it will depend on your choice. Uh, from again, from my position, what I see is um, there will always be a need to explain, not necessarily the model. So it will be explaining um, the process um, because. In the end, um, you always need to be in control. So if you can't explain what the model do, you need to be able to explain um, what's the control you put in place, uh, how you trained the model and what it was reasonable to do, um, what you did with the algorithm and why the, you had, what was the relevant control you put in place to make sure you had the right output. And again, uh, this is, um, where uh, you have explainability. It's um, maybe um, a very um, simple example uh, as a comparison. If you train, uh, let's say, um, uh, an animal to do X, Y, Z, you're not trying to reconstitute, you go around and you look at what training was done, what, uh, how do you make sure that it was safe to um, train the animal in X, Y, Z environment. Um, this is quite simplistic, but actually that's um, the similar logic that's applied. So, um, and if you can't explain, um, the interesting piece is at the moment, the EU uh, just uh, provided a report. Um, um, uh, the, the European Union Commission may, uh, had a report on uh, AI liability and in a nutshell, what they said, if, um, if it's too difficult for an individual um, to be able to show that, uh, to, to actually have the evidence to show um, that harm was caused by um, the algorithm, because it's a black box, it's too difficult, um, the, the, what will happen is they're suggesting that um, the honest go on the corporation or the organization that are using the AI system to show that it has the right process in place and um, therefore um, they were, um, the, the organization was not responsible. So in a nutshell, it's shifting to um, you guilty uh, until proven innocent from an organization perspective. So if you put the two together, you just go, I better explain. <laughs> So that um, actually um, I give the opportunity and uh, better allow people to uh, contest and understand what my algorithm is doing so that you don't go down this 
um, other avenue, which is where the regulator is saying, if it's too hard for them to find the right evidence to make the case, then um, the, all the evidence will be back onto you to to prove that you had not nothing wrong. You d you did nothing wrong. It's it's so interesting because we definitely don't want the AI systems to perpetuate the type of decisions that we have been making, that humans have been making uh, historically, because we know that there's so much so much inherent bias. Uh, in, in those decisions and the way that society is built and run um, in, in the decisions that human makes, humans make every day. There's so much bias in those decisions. So we, as we create AI systems, we definitely want to do a, a review and kind of like a hard reset on what should this decision look like in, in the world that we want to build in the future, in a, in a fairer world, in a more transparent world. I completely see the, the need uh, for that. And it's, and it's so important to, you know, to be firm and, and be able to, to bring that world into, into fruition uh, and into reality. Um, on the other side, the, from, from, from the, from a more technical perspective, um, there's a lot of advancements in, in machine learning in, and in AI, advance, advance, advancements that can bring so much value to the world, but that they are not necessarily explainable. Um, and it's, and it's, it's definitely like a, a trade-off between the two of, of, you know, we can, we can have certainty in how we make the decision so we know that we're making more ethical and fairer decisions than what we did before. Um, but then a lot of people would feel that we're missing out on a lot of the value that a lot of this new, this, the new developments in the technology can provide. Um, so it's, it's obviously really, really uh, interesting and, and tricky and tricky situation uh, where, where people would be very... Uh, passionate about both sides of of the argument and and it's back to my initial point right if you're doing research um, as long as you're taking proper precaution and you have good governance and you can you you, you making sure people are stay safe um, you don't need to um, have that that's that's the focus on and that's where the the legislator are focusing with explainability obviously if you can trace and track and go through all the explanation um, for the, the algorithm that's better but if even if you go back to algo trading right one of um, the issues is to prove intent to trade when it's the algorithm that does uh, the trading um, how do you show intent that's that was a big issue so again um, it's um, it's looking at the process around and um, and not necessarily having to um, decompose the algorithm. You, there was a recent decision um, where the ACCC um, look at uh, Trivago and its use of its algorithm, the way they did to test it, uh, well, to, to understand uh, whether the, the claims that Trivago was making that the algorithm was promoting the best offer to the individuals was actually not by um, opening and um, in the black box and trying to figure out what happened in there. It's by doing testing, having um, test data and see how what was the output of um, the algorithm. So that's why um, 
that's that's how um, at the moment um, we're looking at explainability from my perspective. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. That makes sense. It's um the 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 problem um at least from from a technical perspective, it gets complicated easily because as as data sets have been growing um when you have when you have even a couple hundred uh variables that are being inputted into a system and if you have a couple of million records or a few million records that that um high dimensional space becomes so sparsely populated that um essentially the you would need uh it's something like you would need more um a high number higher than the number of atoms in the universe in order to populate this spa, this high dimensional plane in in a in a manner that is um, sort of well populated enough, dense enough to be able to um, to cover all possible cases because you have so many dimensions uh, to to try and fill out. So so there there's really a, a limitation where the algorithm has to make you know a best a best kind of like a best guess, which is the, the mathematics behind it, but the best guess of how to, how to fill the gaps uh, that there's so, so much, so many gaps in, in, a, in a high dimensional space when, um, when data is, is limited, which it always will, will be regardless of how big it is. Um, so it's, it's uh, yeah, it gets really, really interesting, really, really fast. Um, we have a we have a question from Derek uh, that he's asking about the trade-offs between benefiting society and whether the, how much does that mean that the rights um, of the individual can get trampled on. So if it's if there's something that is that you know that it's sort of good for the many, um, but that might trample on the privacy of of the few. Um, is that something that in the AI ethics standards that, that you've seen either here or overseas, uh, whether things like that are being taken into consideration, which is kind of like um, we could have a totally safe society if we tracked the movements of every person all the time, 24-7, we would be like super safe, but privacy-wise, we would be um, very low on privacy. Uh, do you have you um, heard or come across any scenarios like that on on a, from an AI ethics perspective? So not an ethicist, um, but uh, I'll put that as a <laughs> cover. Um, so obviously you have all the different theory on um, um, value ethics, consequentialism. Which one is the best uh, um, to choose? I, I'm uh, not. Um, looking at um, solving these issues, I, I live to, to the ethicists, they're a much better place. What I can say is from, as I say, um, from a legal perspective, you, um, in order to manage this, you've already got mechanisms in place you can use. This is not a new problem. So um, if, um, if you want to have access to data, um, again, back to my issue, like the, what I mentioned before, you need to manage it properly, uh, obtain the, con the consent of the person, um, and, um, and that's, way, that's one way to acquire the data and make sure, and to, to have more data, um, you'll need a number of consent. So 
Um, that's a longer way, the more difficult way, um, but that's that's where you need to adapt to the benefit of one uh, versus the, the multiplicity. And you have a number of laws currently in place that explains really uh, what is acceptable um, for everyone. So in that case, that's the right standards to apply. Um, when you um, come across more um, something that's outside the law um, uh, and you have the ethical conundrum, um, you you see what um, that's where you've got the what's the health in the health sectors have got quite uh, developed ethical boards that are looking at those issue okay. currently. Um, you just see um, even for um, who. Um, the World Health Organization, they actually set up for corona coronavirus, the, um, there's ethical um, Im impact assessment, so that's what they've drawn, obviously. Um, this is something that's, um, that's developing in, um, for, for data scientists. Um, so far, the mechanism um, with that they look to assess beneficence or um, impact on society uh, is really um, the you see um, there's um, a couple of organizations that have um, advocated for the risk, uh, impact assessments of algorithms. The United Nation has indicated that they're going to work um, on developing uh, risk uh, impact assessment for algorithm and that they're going to have some guidance. So this piece of work is um, still very complex and being developed. Mm. Yeah, really, really complex, really, really complex. Um, and we have a, we have a question from from Jason. Hey, mate. Uh, whether the any code of conduct that, that an organization creates they need to be approved by an independent body? You would have, it's uh, the values. So you, you've got um, some might be mandated, some not. It's just, um, there's a variety uh, depending on, again, on the type of organization. But um, generally you have companies that have their uh, purpose, their corporate value. Um, you'd see that um, any of um, the, um, big technology provider, whether it's Google, Microsoft, IBM, et cetera, they have their core values, their, their purpose. Um, and generally they have to be aligned um, with um, the location in which they, um, they are. Um, so this is generally, um, this exercise has been done again for, you have a number of organizations that already have um, human rights, um, 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 division that's look after inclusion, um, discrimination, etc. This is this is nothing new, and and again, uh, talking generally, they would have some organization uh, would also do uh, have a sustainability report to provide. So these um, these are already in place for quite a number of organization. For the smaller, obviously not, uh, but that's where. Um, the, that's generally when um, for the startup, they always have to start with developing their purpose and uh, with developing um, their, their principles that they abide with. Um, again, one a good example, uh, maybe just 
retracing back to one thing I said before, when we looked at um, AI sex for and using AI to help people with mental disability, one of the um, very, very uh, important um, uh, point was that we needed to agree on um, what was the goal that we wanted to achieve, uh, what uh, was important to improve, to make a, an improvement to um, the life of those individuals, um, and have very clear, clear guidelines on this. So those goals, like you, obviously you have the company goals, but also through projects, that's um, the tendencies to think, oh, I need to get the data first and I need to think about um, DRI, etc. But you also need to set up very, very clear guidelines and goals on what is going to be acceptable and not acceptable and being able to track this um, throughout the project. And this should be done before um, the, the project um, starts at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a high bar, increasingly necessary bar, but um, there's always the trade-off about the, the, I guess, the impact on, on innovation and speed. Um, but it's, it's necessary if we wanna, if we wanna build a better, a better society. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure it's such a trade-off because if you built it early, um, you won't have to retrofit it down the track. Um, so what's what you see currently with legal being involved later down the piece or compliance is often um, those requirements are a bit later on. Um, and if you involve them in the first place, I know there's always a bit of, um, um, let's say, collaboration work that needs to be increased on both sides. <laughs> but um, what's happening is the more especially for ai because it's you have to do all the training etc uh, and that takes already a long time um, it's better to to start at the very beginning so you don't have to retrain um, your algorithm um, closer to the deployment stage which would be um, to be honest from a, just from a financial perspective not very efficient so Oh, I thought when you when you were talking about training, I thought you meant the, the training of the of the uh, of the people involved, like of legal and compliance. Um, that that takes a a long time. Um, I found, um, yeah, there ideally needs to needs to be a balance. But I, I I totally agree that this is necessary and it and it needs to be done and and brought in and done right. Um, I don't know. I don't know what obviously what that what that right looks like, um, but it's it's a tricky and that's that's I guess why why we have you know great people such as yourself working on on helping us see see uh, see the light and and get get through this. Um, so I'm really glad that that you are and thank you thank you for doing that work, and thank you so much for for sharing um, all these all these perspective and and ethical dilemmas with us. It's definitely um, a lot for us to you know, to consider and, uh, and bring into our work and we can, we can definitely build a better society by taking, taking on these, these principles. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks everyone for joining and definitely go and check out the, um, the AI ethical framework uh, from the government. 
and then um, soon coming out from uh, from the standards from uh, standards Australia uh, AI ethical guidelines and framework. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thank you so much, Early. Thanks. Thanks Thank a lot. you. Okay, bye. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.